0: Welcome to Brands in Action, the podcast that asks the questions every brand should be asking. Today, we welcome Victor Lightmanenko, co-founder and designer at Raleigh Denim. Victor created Raleigh Denim as an art project, romantic adventure, and American enterprise with his wife and fellow designer, Sarah Yarbrough, in 2007. Their steadfast commitment to craft, design, and made in America is a rarity in the modern fashion industry, and Sarah and Victor have been building and leading a team of craftspeople in their workshop for the past decade and were accepted to the Council of Fashion Designers of America in 2012. Raleigh Denim continues to design all the products in the United States. Welcome to the show, Victor. What's up, David? How are you? I'm good, man. It's so good to have you on the show, man. I'm such an admirer of what you guys have done and how you've done it in particular. And I'm really excited to talk about the how you've done it. We talk a lot on this podcast about why. And one of the things we talk a lot about is what a brand actually is and a we think of a brand as a, a promise of behavior based on a belief system and a set of values. And I think from that standpoint, you guys are a shining beacon, but everything else you do is really different. And and that's a really cool thing to talk about. You have an amazing background and not one that would lead anyone to think that you'd become a jeans magnate in your life, including being a chef at Nobu of all places, which cook, is- cook, a cook, a cook. A cook, I'm sorry, a cook at Nobu. Talk to me a little bit about What part of that journey brought you and Sarah to start this company?
1: I met Sarah when I was in high school, and I told my best friend at the time that I was going to marry her within 30 minutes or 45 minutes of meeting her. And I didn't know why. It was like she had a spark that I had never seen in another person. And then, you know, as we started dating and and spending time together, we both really like to make things and to create things and to... I think we were both just compelled by that moment where you can take some ordinary things, do something to it and make an extraordinary. And so that I think is like the root of it. I mean, at that time I was into painting and uh, like, like fine art painting and mm-hmm. furniture making. And we got into screen printing and we built a little screen printing setup in our attic. And I don't know, like those things, like, it's like this quest for creation, brought me to cooking at some point in time. And I started cooking at a restaurant in Raleigh called Second Empire, which is one of the nicer restaurants in town. And the the chef there really took me under his wing because I was so hungry to learn and Mm -hmm. wanted to know where everything came from and why it existed and where all the, just like that little kid that asks why too many times, like I was (laughs) still that kid and I maybe still am. Hungry hungry to learn is a
0: a really... It's a really interesting description of you because I think it's really accurate,
1: yeah, and that like curiosity like really drives me, so I ended up getting to starting to learn about wine uh with that chef Daniel Schur, is his name. He's one of my favorite mentors I've ever had in my life. but then I moved back to New York City, and I'd kind of been back and forth a couple of times, and I just took the menu from Second Empire to Nobu, and I was like, "Hey, here's what I know, and everyone mm-hmm. that works there has been to the culinary institute of america or came right. over from another country or something i was just like hey here's what i know and they threw me on the line and then i love the intensity and the like the sport of cooking in a commercial kitchen like the heat yeah. and the speed and the finesse This like balance of menu, like actual manufacturing with art i think that's kind of how i got there it's interesting because
0: going from Second Empire to going to Nobu, you know, Second Empire is a fantastic place. And there was a time in Raleigh where it was kind of the place to go. But going to Nobu is like going to the Yankees when you've been playing in, in a really great college team.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's a fair analogy. At that time, Nobu had been voted best restaurant in New York City for seven years in a row. And after seven years, they took it out of the running and Morimoto the iron first iron chef was there like yeah like he was leaving right as I was getting there but like it was Jay-Z and Leonardo DiCaprio and Mariah Carey and
0: you know every single night
1: that's like every single table it was uh, right. it was definitely a, a spectacle.
0: What made you go from that to starting to make jeans in your apartment?
1: Uh, well the short answer is that cooking got me into winemaking because i wanted to know more about where things came from and and i was just fascinated with this idea of like a singular manufacturing of like Mm -hmm. i love that winemakers everywhere in the world created a product that couldn't be replicated the winemakers i really respected grew their own grapes they made their own wine they only made what they could do and they only put it out when it was good and like their neighbor could grow the same grapes and try and make a similar wine but it would be different right even just philosophically different but like right it's a different air different slope different barrels different timing different hearts and hands and like i just love that and to and i think the winemakers that i really respected they were not in it to be competitive they were in it to just like do their best what's the best thing that i can make and what's the most beautiful interpretation of of what i can do on this land and just wanting to share that and so i got into winemaking and I made wine for six years, and I realized that with the resources that I have or had at the time, uh, winemaking in North Carolina did what wasn't going to happen for me. But while I was up in the mountains in North Carolina, I started learning about the textile history and started meeting all these people that used to work in the denim factories, both for the making the fabric and for making jeans. And I realized this like connection between the philosophy of winemaking and the resources that we had in North Carolina, I was like, Oh, we can make a thing here. That's like, that is of this place. Like the uh, actual like patent for industrial denim production was filed from a building in Greensboro called the white Oak mill, which at the time was owned by Cone mills. I was like, we have this amazing resource. We have this amazing history of people and of skill that that was really just fading away, like fading into, into nowhere.
0: I would imagine there are a lot of people that know that North Carolina was one of the central forces in textile manufacturing, but I, I would bet a lot of people, more people don't know. Mm-hmm. And this was the, one of the centers in the world, right? Absolutely.
1: Especially for denim. So there were, it, there were already people here that knew the the sort of ways, the old ways. Like okay, we use the word romantic in our bio because it was like, it's both romantic that like Sarah and I started this thing together, but it's also like, it was kind of like a romantic craft idea, too, of digging in and connecting to people and places where we grew up to revitalize it, present it in a new way, elevate it. It didn't really make like business sense at at the time. People thought we were crazy and they told us we were going to fail and that if we wanted to do fashion, we had to be in New York or L.A. or this or that. And you're like, no, no, we don't want to do your, quote, capital F fashion, like we have something different to say. We have something different to share. Yeah. And it's from here and it's of here. It's not a story that gets told in fashion very often.
0: That's a super interesting point because, you know, I've had a couple of startups in the last 10 years and we used to always say when you start a company, like you got to kind of walk around as if, mm-hmm. because you have to walk around what you're going to be, not what you are, because what you are is a startup, you mm-hmm. know, but you have an idea and you have a love and a passion for whatever it is you're doing. hmm and one of the things that I I was really blown away with about you guys was how fast you became relevant. And in fact, you were heralded at the time as sort of bringing manufacturing back and bringing manufacturing back to Raleigh in one, in one way into North Carolina in another way. And you were making this kind of crafted denim in this time-honored way. And I always wondered like, how intentional was that narrative for you guys Or how much was it just put
1: upon you? The answer is both. But like the reason that we did things the way that we did them is that we wanted to make a better thing. We wanted to make a thing that's of our minds and of our hearts and of our hands. We live in Raleigh. We live in North Carolina. We live in America. If we lived in Brazil, we would have made it there. Like we didn't make it here. Right to say that it was made in America. We made it here because we wanted to make a better thing and we had to make the thing for it to be better. Right. You know, that's one of those, like, is it a, is a square rectangle and a rectangle, not a square kind of like thing where it's like, it is kind of both, but the intention was we wanted quality control and we wanted design control and we wanted to like, no, wholeheartedly. I wanted to look somebody in the eye and say, like, if I'm going to charge you three hundred dollars for a pair of jeans, it's got to be the fucking best pair of jeans on earth. And the only way I'll know that is if I actually make it. Right. Did that ever start to feel like a responsibility
0: that you know you, that you're now accountable for manufacturing in Raleigh, and North Carolina? Because the the industry collapsed here. You know, it collapsed here for a lot of reasons, and we don't need to get into those reasons. But it did collapse, and there were a lot of people out of work. And there's a lot of I still hear to this day, like, we need to bring manufacturing back and you guys did, and you did in your own corner. Mm-hmm. Did that ever start to feel like an onus or a, a responsibility on
1: your shoulders? No. We do what we do because we're insanely passionate about what we do. I love that we can have broader impacts. I love that we can be presented or be a part of other ideas and bigger picture things. But like, we do what we do because it's honest and pure and true to us. Yeah. And that's it you know, the wind blows this way today, the wind blows this way another day. Like we're still going to do what what we do, what we think is right, the way that we think is best. And I think that's the core of the brand is that like that we analyze every single aspect of every single everything. We make judgments on all of those things because it's always changing. Ten years ago, we could buy every single piece of raw material, fabric, thread, zipper, label, blah, 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 everything, everything in North Carolina. And now we can just get the thread. Is it because it keeps collapsing? I I don't know. I mean, like I have like personal feelings and grudges with yeah. the the reason things change and then I think there's plenty of things that I might not understand. But I mean the mill that was making denim for over a hundred years that invent literally filed the patents for denim, like it was shut down in twenty seventeen. Yeah, I remember that. I mean, because like a hedge fund bought the company and wanted to shed some fat. And it's like Yeah if they had just charged 50 cents more per yard, they probably could have broken even and it could have been the best marketing story in the world, but they just didn't want to do that or have the will to do that. Or if that mill was in Japan, they would have designated it a national treasure.
0: Right. And it should have been actually. Yeah.
1: I don't know. It's uh, it's such a shame and it's heartbreaking and it's like the worst parts of capitalism. Like, I mean, obviously I'm an entrepreneur. So in some ways I'm a, capitalist but there are some things that like don't need to happen and shouldn't happen i mean how many how many brands do you know of in america that are over a hundred years old yeah not a lot how many things do you come in contact with i mean a hundred years in america is like eternity and you go to europe you go to japan you go to china you go to somewhere else it's like a hundred years is like they they don't even blink at it like everyone's house is 100 years old everyone's house is 500 years old it's like But in America, that's like that's the only history we have. Well, I would also say they're making denim.
0: I mean, what's what's a more popular product than denim? And what's a more American product? Yeah, it is. It's like jazz. Yeah, it's like Mm -hmm. jazz. Mm -hmm. I might even kind of postulate that you kept them open longer than they would have been. But one of the things that I really loved about you guys, and we've sort of mentioned it a little bit, but was the idea of not having to go to New York or Paris to get capital F fashion. You guys really have been accepted into a fashion I don't know what milieu I'm gonna call it a milieu like I don't know what word to use you know I, you have been accepted into the circle of, of fashion and you know I remember I think it was I guess it was in 2012 we talked about earlier I remember seeing the article uh, where you guys were named to the council of uh, American council of fashion of fashion designers of America that was like a really big deal I always wondered how intentional that was Were were you guys making so much noise with what you were doing that you got invited, or was that strategically something you were aiming at getting
1: invited into? Well, I mean, it was a dream, honestly like I mean' it's it's like incredible the, yeah the top couple hundred designers. I mean it's like Calvin Klein and Tommy Hilfiger and Diane von Furstenberg and it's that kind of echelon of people and we you know obviously like dreamed of being a part of that and we ended up making pretty good friends with a designer named John Patrick. We collaborated with him on a a few different things. And at some point in time, he was like, you need to apply. And I mean, he's been in New York for a long time. And and we said, "Uh, okay, like, if you think so, we should, we will. And we actually had so much fun with the... So it wasn't an actual invite, but he did write a recommendation for us. Um, and We got a few other pretty good ones. But then from our part, we we had a lot of fun with the uh, application and we we built this eight inch by eight inch steel box that we then had chromed. So it's like a mirrored box that weighed like 15 pounds. And then you take the top lid off and we made eight different small books that would slide out like slides from a projector kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And you're like, dip your fingers in and like one would be about craft. One would be about fit. One would be about fashion. One would be about I just, all these different things. And I, I think we're one of the very first like quote denim designers to be accepted.
0: Well, I think you're actually getting into, you know, this podcast is ostensibly about brands. And one of the things that I've, I'm always fascinated about with you guys is you and Sarah are the brand. There are those brands out there that are sort of founder led and founder driven. And by that, I don't just mean driven, like, you know, the execution of it, like the, this whole the soul of it is you guys. And just the fact that you brought this level of craft and thinking to that application is why you deserve to be in there and why you got in there, I'm sure. I I would imagine there are some people that get in and don't do that. (laughs) They Don't do that and they end up not getting in. But, uh, you know, one of the things we were talking about was, you know, bringing this notion of fashion doesn't have to come from New York or Paris. You did open a store in New York and um i don't i think you closed it right
1: we did yeah no we were there we had a 5 year lease and at that yeah. end of that time the the renewal rate was more than we could make sense of talk about that what did you learn from that you know you did end up going
0: to new york and you you i remember you went in as raleigh denim like you did not try to play the game of new york you went in as what you are here talk about what did you learn from that
1: we had been living in and out of new york for a really long, I don't know, at least a decade at that point. And so Barney's was our first account. And then we started picking up some better, smaller accounts around the country. And this is like 2009, 10, 11. And then we got an email from an architecture firm called OMA, which is Rem Koolhaas's firm. It's, I think, arguably the the best firm in the world. Uh, and liked what we were up to. And if we ever were working on anything to to let them know. And, and we were kind of like dumbstruck and we were like, Right. I don't know, four days later wrote back and said, um, our budgets would probably be close to what you spent on coffee on your last project and they they wrote back one sentence, it said constraints breed creativity and then we called them and we talked and we went to their office you know, we just started talking through looking at what it takes, how it is, you know what it would mean for us from a business standpoint, from a brand standpoint at that time, like it felt like the most legitimate brands had some sort of presence in New York. And, mm-hmm. and so we were eager to do that. We were going up there for trade shows all the time. We were going up for meetings all the time. And there was just a, a a pretty simple like economic argument to be made that if we leased a space and built it out cool and we could use it for all those things that it would at worst break even. And, we, mm-hmm. you know, over five years is basically what happened, but it was cool to have a home base there, and it was cool to kind of like look internally with OMA. So like, what are our connections to craft? Our connections to design? Who are we, and why are we? And that kind of exploration manifested in a very different way. I mean, you've been in our store here, and and like, it's darker woods and painted black metal and concrete, and you know, it feels kind of cozy and kind of tight. And you know, so they came down here, and we digested what's there, and we said, right, you know, what is here? Why is it here? And we kind of looked forward, and we created this space that was that kind of answered the same questions, but in a completely different way. And that architectural and design exploration was one of my favorite things I've ever been a part of in my life. It was a, a different way to to show and think about craft, fashion. I mean, at that time we were kind of being pushed into like a heritage thing, and we're not heritage. Right. Like I'm not right. trying to recreate the past. I'm not trying to. I had no interest in like recreating the nineteen forty fit of Levi's blah blah blah. It's like, that's already been done. That is not my purpose on earth. Like, I want to do something of today and of now that pays respect to the past, that builds from the building blocks, from the fabric, the machines, the methods. But but what's our current day interpretation is like is really fun, interesting to for me to think about. That's that's where my interest lies. So what to learn out of the New York store is like that that exploration is profound, that connecting to Shohei Shigematsu at OMA and that whole team exploded my creative brain and was one of the most fun things we've ever done. And, and that after five years, like that that was enough. Yeah. That we don't, as a brand, actually need that. Well, I remember at the time when you shut it down, you treated it like a victory, not a failure. Well, it absolutely was. I mean, yeah, we had so much fun. We had like really awesome parties there. We had awesome sales meetings there. We used it as our office. We use it to greet people from around the world. Which is what your space now is. Mm -hmm.
0: Your space now feels like an art studio with jeans in it, you know, Mm -hmm. and a manufacturing sort of floor on the, on the other side of the wall. For people that are listening to this, it really is an incredible experience going in there. You just kind of want to go hang out.
1: Thank you. And that I mean that's the idea. I think the the root of it is you know, when we hire people to work in the store, they're not hired as a salesperson, they're hired as educators. Yeah. Not just of denim or jeans, but of our city and of our place and of our perspective. And I feel like if we can create a space that where you like walk in and you take a deep breath and the air tastes different because you know something different is happening in that space. Then people are going to decide whether or not they want the jeans or not I, I, and like it's not even the point the point is to connect right creatively connect honestly to share to teach
0: it gets into what we're talking about with this, what a brand is a brand is a state of being the word brand should be a verb not a noun right it's mm-hmm. it is a, a whole way of being and the saying the articulation part is just part of it that's like one of the things you do and I think where most brands go wrong is they just articulate themselves and then they don't even try to be what they're articulating. Do you guys have an articulation of your brand? Huh. Like if you're if you're trying to sell yourself into Barney's, what did you say? I want to preface this with something because one of the things that I I think you guys should be taught in business school for what you've done, because neither of you, as far as I know, are in any way marketing trained in marketing. And yet you have built one of the most valuable brands, certainly in North Carolina. Absolutely in Raleigh, but I think one of the coolest brands in denim and beyond, because it actually does go beyond that. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but I'll share a quick story with you. When we interview people, sometimes we'll fly somebody in from New York or Seattle or San Francisco. They all want to go check out Raleigh denim. It's it's really funny. They're like, you know, they'll be like, Hey, I want to check out the museum scene. I want to know what the restaurant scene is. Oh, we got to go to Raleigh denim. Your space is on like a tourist list, you know, yeah. of what people want to do when they come here. And yet you guys have done everything sort of your own way. You've lived it. And that has created what is ostensibly absolutely brilliant marketing without any sort of of the trappings of normal marketing. In fact, Mm -hmm. I've heard you articulate it as marketing anarchy. Yeah, that's what we call it. Yeah. Yeah. And I sense that you have a little bit of a disdain for marketing. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, I can. For sure. And my God, thank you all those kind of things that you just said that's uh i i have this uh like my screensaver on my phone is an x-ray of a, a hand with the middle finger so it's just the bones and it's my like every time i look at my phone it's my reminder yeah. to our industry like i i have a disdain toward marketing especially in fashion especially in our industry because i feel like it's not the truth Mm -hmm. I feel like what I'm told is not the truth. And I feel like our brand's responsibility is to tell the truth and to share the truth and be it good or bad or right or wrong, whatever. I don't, I I leave that to other people to make those determinations. But I, I think that a lot of brands in our industry have been pushed to make cheaper, shittier things. And then they invest pretty heavily into their advertising and their marketing in a way that like sells a story, but it's not their story. Mm -hmm. I mean like the mill in Greensboro closed because Levi's pulled their production out. Right. And they moved it to Thailand and the mill in Thailand makes beautiful fabric. So I don't have any qualm with that. Right. But then that same year they come out with a go forth campaign, which very much looks to me like it's all about America and Americans and this thing. And it just like, there's such an extreme dissonance there that it, it makes me nauseous. Right. And so the disdain isn't from marketing. It's from the way that companies in our industry market.
0: Yeah. It's for being dishonest.
1: Yeah. I think I, I love the idea of marketing. I love sharing stories. I love showing people pictures of what we do and how we do it and why we do it. Like, I, I love it. But there's just this like strange dichotomy between or I, I mean, the issue is just telling the truth, yeah, and, and telling a story that's meaningful. And I, I feel like it's missing for a lot of companies. I feel like a lot of companies are just like they're pushed to make by their shareholders to make shittier things and then to keep selling them. And and I don't know that the public gets enough. Like some things are so complex that it's hard to totally understand. Like, I mean, the the denim supply chain for the global market of very inexpensive things is is insane i've been doing this for 15 years and it's like i have a fairly good idea about it but i actually don't really yeah yeah and and so to expect the average consumer to be able to weigh those things is crazy here's what i think is funny because because i know you i
0: i've called victor a number of times and i've said hey these guys are saying they're handmade this jeans ex jeans company saying they're all handmade and you're like no that's complete bullshit that's not true you know well, then, I mean like what does
1: handmade mean?
0: Right. It means yeah, right. Especially when
1: you're someone's working a machine, right? Yeah. Or many machines. And I mean we we've struggled with that and we you know the term we we had to invent new words because handmade I think is total bullshit for jeans because you can't actually make a pair of jeans by hand. Well, you could with a, a with a needle and a thread and it yeah, would You you could, but you couldn't like sell it. <laughs> like Right. I mean so we came up with the term jeansmiths. Right. Which to us is like People that are dedicated to the craft that make jeans and we use the right machines for the right things at the right
0: times. So you just, you just articulated your, your brand. I don't know if you know that. Yeah. (laughs) You know, that's the thing that I think is so amazing about you guys is you have this intuitive ability that is intentional without being forced or or fraud. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I always say this about booze, man. I, you know, I'm a big fan of whiskeys and things like that. And you'll see a new brand come out and they're brand new, you know, they're brand new and they have a 12 year aged whiskey and you're like, well, you didn't make it. Right. You know, you can talk all you want about your master distillers philosophy and stuff, but it was made in Cincinnati in one of right, the right. distilleries and you didn't make it. Now you might have been able to ask for certain flavor profiles and things like that, but the whiskey category is very similar to the jeans category mm-hmm. where it's just full of, fraud. It doesn't mean the products are bad either, by the way. It just means it's they're they're selling you soap. You know, they're just right. selling you soap.
1: I think if people just told the truth, it would be totally, I would have no issue with it.
0: It's something that we push all the time. Yeah. You have to be authentically who you are. And authentic is a terrible word, but it's a bankrupt word. It's not a terrible word, but it's just bankrupt <laughs> at this point, you know, <laughs> because everyone says they're authentic. And I've heard so many people say they're authentic in the most un- inauthentic ways. Yeah. So let me ask you this, you know, a brand like you, I have to think, and I'm not asking for anything inside, but I have to think that you have been approached by the the big players for acquisition. You know, as far as I know, you've, you've never done it, but if you did, let's play a game and pretend that you did get bought by a Levi's or a, a Lee or, you know, one of the, one of the big players. And what happens with that is a lot of times when that happens, in fact, we had we had the the founder of Hello Products on this show, who's an, an amazing guy. And they got bought by by Colgate. And Colgate put him in he 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 did such an amazing job with that brand. They put him in charge of their innovation. And he's changing Colgate from the inside out. What would you do? Like say say you walked into one of those big giant brands. What would you do? Like what would your first sort of order of business be?
1: I would share more of the stories. More honestly and authentically, I would probably develop things that that they haven't developed yet that I think intuitively makes sense to me and that we do all the time. I am incredibly interested in having a bigger impact. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting and profound and cool. Like for the first decade of what we were doing to like just prove like proof of concept. We wanted to make the most ideal pair of jeans on Earth. And to me, that included using organic cotton made in North Carolina with the smallest carbon footprint, blah, blah, blah. And we did it. Right. We, we called all these farmers. We called you had to create it. Right. Everyone, all this quote specialists that we talked to said, Oh, it's not possible. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like people made organic cotton for like millions of or thousands of years. I don't know. Like, or hundreds of thousands of years. Like we can do this. This is possible. And we found a farmer in Nash County and we got a group of businesses together to buy futures at every quality level. And it came out at the highest quality level and, and we made that happen. And I think from that, we we got asked by Patagonia to help them design some uh, of their denim line. Like the idea of, of putting this stuff to work and actually making change in the industry and in the world is unbelievably captivating to me. Yeah, We've had this incubator space where we could just kind of like give the middle finger all the way around and just say, no, no, we're going to do exactly what we want to do, however we want to do it. But like, I think we're getting close to a point where where we could have some much greater and broader impact be that through Raleigh Denham or be that with somebody else I mean I we did get an offer from a giant company at some point in time and it was I didn't feel like it was a fair offer yeah at that point we um really just absolutely were loving what we were doing so you know we needed like a offer we couldn't refuse um and then I actually uh, was working with Wrangler for a while I, I think that company is so cool Mm -hmm. and I think they're just like missing the mark on so many things and I was like guys let me help build something a little bit higher end a little bit deeper share like they do so many cool things that they don't talk about and so when you asked about like the guy from Colgate that is really interesting to me yeah but also like just having this like art studio is incredibly interesting to me too like yeah yeah like what we do right now to me feels like an art studio it feels like I can make and create anything today and I can make and create anything tomorrow and I can share it. And there's enough of a following, enough of a business to so like keep it going, basically, probably for as long as I want to do it. And yeah. And that's a freedom I've never felt before. So I mean there's like you know, those are two things pulling in different directions.
0: Well, let's talk about some of that. I do want to say uh, his name is Craig Dubitsky and he is he is one of my marketing heroes as well. Like he's he's a very instinctive guy and the things he does are just what the brand is. He just operates as the brand, as do you. And and you may say, hey, I'm not comfortable talking about that, but I wanna the the thing you're doing called one of one is mm-hmm. astounding to me. And I'd love for you to talk about that because I love when an idea operates at every level of the purchase funnel. And by that, going from awareness all the way down to purchase, right? So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the best ideas do that, where they just live there. And I want you to talk about this because this is one of those ideas that does it. And it's absolutely brilliant marketing for everything you do, even though it's this other little thing you're doing. Can you talk about that? Talk about one more. Sure, sure,
1: sure. So in the beginning, we like uh, we used to just make things for ourselves and we would make things for our friends out of this like compulsion to make and connect. And then we turn that kind of into a business And we we're like, Oh, we have to standardize some stuff and make some stuff. And then we turned into managers. And then at some point in time we realized that and we were like, no, 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 we really just like to make things. And the absolute happiest moments of, of my like creative life are when somebody that I really, really care, uh, respect um, from a creative standpoint, sometimes that's someone that is, famous sometimes it's like a kid in high school down the street like but somebody that is just absolutely passionate about what they're doing I see it in people at times and I just like I know it. it happens once Mm -hmm. every two years and I'll be like hey come in to what are you doing next week come come to the shop let's make something and they come to the shop we order dinner we hang out and we just start making and it's just like crazily like it's almost like a cannibalistic thing of creativity. It's like when I see really creative people, I was like, I want to fucking eat their creativity as my food to like, help me make something new. Like I want to make new things. And I've been so attracted to musicians and to artists because they're always making something new and and so I'd invite somebody in and we make something. So it's one of one. In the beginning we were making these like runs of a hundred or two hundred and we would addition number them because we and hand sign them. But then I was making something truly custom for a person with a person. I started numbering them one out of one because it it's one of a kind. And one of one is a thing I've been doing for ten years. And I don't know, a couple of years ago, I thought maybe we should open that up. Like maybe there are people that would be into that. Maybe like, maybe there are people that want to be a part of an artistic commission in a way. Like people will hire a, a painter to, to paint a painting to, they'll right. say, I have this kind of wall and I like these kinds of colors go for it. And I just threw this out there one day. Cause I, I couldn't not, I guess like it's been percolating and festering, at the same time where it was like kind of big growing and dying in me at all times. And I was like, finally, I was just like, I'm just going to put it out there. I was like, you know, say this is art. I'm going to charge an art price for it. I want to put that amount of time into it. And, and we put it up at $5,000, which sounds insane for an article of clothing,
0: <laughs> but it's not
1: that crazy for a piece of art. Right. And I've been pretty crazily happily surprised at how many people have, have taken me up on it. Is it
0: always clothing that sort of walks out the door or is it could it be anything?
1: It could be anything, but yeah. so far it's been clothing. I mean, that's the thing that I feel like I've got like a mastery level of craft and ability over not that I'm a master in any I don't mean that, but just to like like I I feel like I'm willing to just like jump in the soup and do things that I've never done and try and it's like I I have faith that I can figure it out. And sometimes I figure it out pretty quickly and sometimes it takes three months. And, and I think that's kind of the, I don't know, I want to say like the deal, but it's not a, necessarily the deal. It's a promise of wholehearted effort toward an idea that has never existed.
0: Yeah. I love that. You know, it's, it's funny. You don't ask for art to be done on time. You mm-hmm. ask for art to be done and be, to be great. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I I love that idea of just, we're going to make something. We don't know what it is, but again, I think it is completely, it encapsulates your entire philosophy around what you're doing. And I will say, I don't, I still, it's a little bit magic to me. I don't understand it. I don't understand why your clothing fits so well. I just Mm -hmm. don't get it. I have a million pairs of jeans and I stopped buying all other brands after the first pair I wore of Raleigh denim, where I went, I just thought I was like awkwardly shaped or something. Like jeans just never fit me ever, ever. Like jeans never fit me my entire life. And then, and then I, I, I bought some Raleigh denim jeans and I went, wait, oh, these fit. Like, this is really weird. And then I, I bought like 12 pair over like, you know, five or six. I just, I just was like, I'm never buying another pair of pants ever. This is the pair of pants I'm buying. Like these (laughs) are the jeans.
1: How did you do that? It was 2008. Sarah and I, we were working in a building in Southeast Raleigh that had no heat and no windows and no sign and no nothing. It was just some space outside of our apartment because we were in our apartment before that. And the local news came and did like a 15 second piece on us. And then one day an older lady came and she walked in and she had bunch of pieces of paper in her hand and she was like i heard you make jeans here and i had to come see for myself and she handed me her resume and she was the pattern maker at levi's in the 60s and 70s and she opened all of their factories and was their quality control across the southeast and puerto rico and all all over like i don't know what her official title was but it was one of the tip-top pattern makers at the company and she was just like working at joanne's like fabric store. And losing her mind, and I will say maybe at that time she was in her mid seventies, and she has so much drive and so much energy and so much heart and so much passion, and she's like, "I want to work here." And I was like, "We don't pay ourselves. Like this is, we don't have any money. We're not really a company yet." And she said, "Okay, that's fine. I'll work for free until you can." And she started taking these patterns that Sarah and I had made that, you know, we could make a sample that fit right, and we knew what was right, and. And we would do a hundred, like we would, we would make a hundred samples and a hundred patterns and, but they weren't in any way, shape or form ready for production or mm-hmm. to fit different size bodies. So it's called grade rules is when like, is this study of anatomy? You think about both men and women, it's very different, but think about like the circumference of your ankle, then think about the circumference of your knee, the circumference of your thigh, of your seat like right around your hip and your waist. And then think about somebody that's like two, three, four sizes smaller than you, two, three, four sizes bigger than you, or two, three decades older, or two, three decades younger. And it becomes this scientific study of the human form over all ages, over all sizes. And then proportionally, to make the back pocket similar for let's say a guy that wears a size 30 or a guy that wears a size 38 with the goal i mean our goal in the beginning was to make people feel more confident fashion is interesting because it can change our perspectives on life it can change our our buoyancy in the world and so to get that right like we work with chris who crystal ellsberg who i was telling you about the pattern maker Mm -hmm. and then our kind of like stylistic direction and then balancing that with like all the different body sizes and shapes as we can and we don't make every gene for every person it's impossible um but when you think about like the sizes that we are making the shapes of the patterns the it's all done by hand and i've had these patterns like like chris and i cut out every single one we work together for four to six hours every single day for over 10 years and at the end of 10 years she said victor in 10 or 20 years you'll be an okay pattern maker (laughs) yeah and it's this just like eternal study of what are our machines how do we sew what happens to this fabric what shapes make people's asses look good i mean quite honestly like we wear jeans to look good and to feel good and it's a crazy thing that I i don't think brands talk I haven't seen many brands talk about it. and But it's like, we all know it. Like you may have 10 jeans in your closet, but you probably only wear one. It's in almost
0: every brand brief is to make, you know, almost every brand brief for jeans and clothing and things like that is confidence. It's it's all over the place. Right. I see confidence in briefs all the time. But you don't- Right, right, right. So how do you get that across? Yeah, you don't talk about it. You try to be it, you know? Right. Or you try to provide it, yeah.
1: But the thing is, like, every single human in the world- knows what pair of jeans works for them and knows what's good and what's not. People will keep buying. I'm not talking about buying habits. I'm talking about like what's actually in your closet, what's actually in your drawer, like what's your go-to pair, what's your – so like it it actually like warms my heart to some unknown degree that you say that you love the way our jeans fit so much because that's actually taken 10 years to figure out. Mm -hmm. I wear them until they disintegrate. Yeah.
0: Just so and know. I think
1: that's a thing that like most brands can't do. Like you were talking about the 12 year bourbon or whatever. It's like, and we knew that from the beginning too. And we haven't stopped studying and perfecting. And like, that's a continual thing. You guys did a campaign a few years ago that I thought was super cool where you,
0: um, asked just ask people to submit their genes
1: mm-hmm.
0: on social and people were uploading pictures of their jeans. And what was so great about it is, is you just saw the jeans. I mean, it was shots from, with iPhones and they were actually super cool. But what you actually saw was the person as much as you saw the jeans, even though you were only looking at the jeans. Yeah. And uh, I thought that was absolutely brilliant and simple. And again, like you guys are intuitively some of the best marketers I've, I've ever met. It was just really
1: brilliant idea. I mean, the idea of a lot of the jeans that we make, you know, not, not for all jeans is that with raw raw denim is that it's a blank canvas and that it's dark and the way the indigo works is like it's uh it's like paint adhered to the outside of a like a pole or something so Mm -hmm. the 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 indigo is just like if you cut a yarn in half you just see a ring of blue and then white in the middle Mm -hmm. i mean we know that jeans break in and this and that but like but the idea is that you start with a raw pair and you wear it and you wear it and you wear it it fades based on the way that your bones are shaped based on the way that mm-hmm. your muscles are shaped based on what you do. And that you know, a year or two, three years later, you start to see those things uh, in reverse. It's a collaborative effort. And I think that's what we were trying to highlight with that, with that idea, with that campaign is it's like, we, we can only do so much, but at that point, it's really a starting point for you. Like, what do you do with it? Uh, right. And to be able to like, bring it full circle and celebrate that was, is really fun. I mean, that's the whole idea behind a raw gene, both for men and women.
0: So I'd love to, I'd love to hear a little bit about snakey tail. And, you know, I I just found out about this yesterday when we were talking, but talk a little bit about snakey tail, because a lot of what we've talked about, I think is where this is going.
1: Yeah. So the snakey tail is the idea of that creative cannibalism thing. Like I want to be around creative people. I don't care who or where or what I want to eat it. And I want to like see what happens. I want to see what I do with it. And then I want to share things. And I want people to wear them where they're on tour or wear them to work or wear them to do the things that they're passionate about and see what comes from that. And I think that there's this just beautiful circular thing that can happen. It, it came out of the one-of-one one idea. And then it turned out that we were like having these really fun conversations with people. And, and we started recording a couple of these things. And, and what ends up happening is, now that we have this we have this pitch for a television show called snakey tail where we hang out with people that do really cool shit but like we go deep so it's not just like a it's like we hang out for like 8 10 12 48 hours yeah play basketball learn i learn about who this person is i show them stuff we dig into fabric i teach them about things they tell me what they need what they like we make something together the whole time we're making together it takes a long time to make a thing we're just talking and you know you get through you cut through like the chit chat the bullshit the blah 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 because we're not at a party we're not at a cocktail we're not at a dinner it's like after an hour goes by we have very different conversations and after it gets quiet and then we start talking again after it gets quiet and we think about it and then we look at it and and so half of the show is about the actual creation of a garment and then half of the show is just a creative conversation where usually it goes back and forth. It's not just me interviewing this person. yeah. It. It's like they're sitting in our factory, in our space, in our workshop, and I'm making a thing and I put them to work and I teach them how to do some things. And, you know, some of the, the people, the the, the garment is like just so unbelievably compelling and interesting and weird and different that, that most of it's about that. And sometimes the garments are total duds, but the conversations are insane.
0: Again, brilliant marketing. It's such a
1: great idea for
0: content and the show and the clothing and you guys. And, you know, uh, it's it's just super cool. I love the way you guys live in the community and I love the way you've supported manufacturing and you've supported the state and you've supported like these craftspeople who, who were sort of abandoned by the industry. Talk a little bit about the nonprofit that you guys are involved with called Wolf.
1: Yeah, there's a... A new nonprofit called Wolf, which is an acronym for the White Oak Legacy Foundation, and our kind of mission is is about respecting and celebrating the history of textiles and denim in North Carolina, specifically at the White Oak Mill in Greensboro. Preserving it, there's going to be a museum aspect and education aspect, but it's also a really cool part of it is that we got two of the original looms, the salvage looms that were. At that building, and we've got them back in that building, and we are actually making fabric again as of just a, a couple months ago. That's incredible. It's crazy. It's like entirely bootstrapped, and it's required an insane amount of work from a few people, and the like. Very first products made with fabric from the looms from the 1930s. Yeah. So some of the first fabrics made in that building on these original looms is going to be coming out in the next couple of weeks. And it's just a, it's a really cool, amazing thing where we're a part of a group of people, you know, the the North Carolina state motto is to be rather than to seem. And I think that's a thing that really sticks like so hard with our brand. We like, we want to show, we don't necessarily need to just talk about it or like, we're not here to like tell stories. We're here to tell the truth and we're here to like show what we do. And it's been a really cool thing to like be a part of this. What's the long-term goal? It's to preserve the history of all the people that worked at that mill, of the history of denim and textile history of, of North Carolina. We're going to build a museum. And then it's also to educate the next generation of people that are interested in textiles and, and hopefully be a platform for the future of textiles in North Carolina, along with a production component where... We're actually making fabrics on the exact looms in the exact building, as it's been done for over a hundred years.
0: That's incredible.
1: It really is kind of bonkers.
0: I have this idea that risk is safety, and safety is risk. Being risky, taking risks, is actually the safe way to go. Leaning into fear is actually where every opportunity is. It's always where the opportunity is, always. And trying to stay safe, and I'm not talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where we're talking about food and shelter. I'm just saying in life, trying to stay safe is actually super risky. Um, hmm. It is the prevent defense of life. Like you're gonna lose the game. And I said to you one time, we were talking about something and I said, hey, what have you got to lose? And you said, you have everything to lose. Yeah. And I don't know if you remember that conversation, <laughs> but <laughs> I'd love for you to talk about that because it was such a great reminder to me yeah. of uh, when you guys started and somebody said to you, well, hey, what have you got to lose doing this? And you said, we've got
1: everything to lose. Talk about that. What's that if you don't do it? Like none of the, none of your, you you lose all of your future possibilities if you don't do it. Like everyone's a hater. Everyone doesn't like think it'll work. And, you know, if it doesn't work, okay, well, you have to be okay with those consequences. But like, if you don't even give it a chance, you lose everything. And, And so the idea of like having nothing to lose is so wrong. You have everything to lose. You have your future to lose. You have your life to lose. Like, yeah, I find it to be a a strange thing that people say that you have nothing to lose. I think a lot of people go into startups
0: with a passion and a love of something, and they sometimes lose that along the way, or all of the fear takes that love and passion away from them. Mm I've always felt never, never going into anything just for the money. I mean, if you can make a living at something you love, that's magic and you should mm-hmm. be so thankful for it. But that's the orientation I always take for sure. And I never go into anything going like, well, the exit in five years. is And I understand that a lot of people do that. And God bless them. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying don't do that. I just don't do that. I don't come in saying I have an exit in mind. And the journey is that the journey is the journey. That's the fun. That's the magic. What would you say, if you could wave a magic wand, what's the next 10 years for Raleigh Denim?
1: The two things that like I think about when I go to bed and I, I feel when I wake up in the morning revolve around connections and creativity, uh, like pushing for more, like actual, true, more sustainability, like with growing the first crop of certified organic cotton. We don't use sustainability as a term because I think it's like almost like a worthless term at this point. But I do think that our impact, like I'd I'd like for us to have more impact in a way that actually affects the global supply chain and actually affects how things are grown and how things are made and transparency in our industry that requires scale, but it's not that hard to do. Like we've proven it. We've done it. We've been doing it for a long time. It works.
0: Listen, that's the very definition of creating shared value is solving a problem and then scaling it. And that's mm-hmm. what business does, and that's what the world needs more of is businesses that do that. So I, I think that's a fantastic place to end this. You know, I will say I've always kind of felt like you and Sarah are the brand for Raleigh Denim, and in a way, you're, you're kind of like a band, and and jeans are just the music that you guys make. I like that. We use band metaphors a lot at my at my at my companies, and the reason is that. If you think about bands and music and bands are brands, but they are they are brands that have expected behavior. You know, they they mm-hmm. they're expected to grow, they're expected to be artistic, they're expected to do things, but there's commerce in there, like if you want to make a living at it. So right. I think it's cool. And I love how you guys just follow your heart. Absolutely amazing. So Victor, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: This has been another episode of Brands in Action. Many thanks to our guest, Victor Lightvanenko. Today's show has been brought to you by PonySource Brewing. The beer beer would drink if beer could drink beer. PonySource Brewing, drink about it. If you're digging the show, please give us a review and a like. It really does make a difference. Production help by Nathan Nichols. Editing by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell. Executive production by Alexa Tesoriero. And music by Medium Heat. All other help from your friendly neighborhood baldwin Ann.